Welcome to Resonance, conversations about life and music, a production of Palaver Strings with me, your host, Nate Martin. Nicholas Kitchen is a violinist in the Borromeo String Quartet. They are the Ensemble in Residence at New England Conservatory, the Taos School of Music, the Heifetz International Music Institute, and the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Nick is also the artistic director of the Heifetz International Music Institute. Uh, he has a private studio at New England Conservatory. He performs as a soloist. He arranges pieces for the quartet. And he collaborates with the Library of Congress to study and perform from manuscript versions of the works of Bach and Beethoven and Bartok, among others. And through this process, reveals alternate melodies, alternate harmonies, and sometimes entire alternate movements that have never been performed before to illuminate what goes on in the experience of the famous composers. He's made a personal study of the lives of those composers in tandem with his study of their manuscripts, uh, but he also uh, dabbles in computer programming. For all his accolades, which are kind of intimidating to behold, he is just the nicest guy. I met Nick in my time at New England Conservatory, the Borromeo Quartet, was teaching an interpretation class. And that was basically a big master class where students of all instruments would perform for and receive guidance from the members of the quartet. But in my second year at NEC, I was selected for the quartet's Guest Artist Award. And we played the Dvorak String Quintet together. That was the most fun I have ever had in any audition. There was one solo component and I was fine, but the real treat was just getting to play a selection of the quartet, uh, the quintet, excuse me, uh, and, and just like play with them. And they're so good. And it was so much fun. Oh, man. So then we uh, ended up playing at Jordan Hall and uh, that was beautiful. Anyways, the more I knew Nick, the more I was surprised to find that while it was abundantly clear that he had the talent and the brilliance, which can, in some people, come with a sprinkling of arrogance, or worse. He was actually just this sweet, unassuming guy, curious and non-judgmental, creative and passionate, collaborative, flexible, and genuinely interested and ready to just hang out with a random 24-year-old dude like me. <laughs> now, this conversation that you're about to hear happened back in January. Nick joined Palaver Strings as soloist to play Vivaldi's Winter as part of our concert that was called The Nature of Daylight. Coming into this conversation, I wanted to know how he came by this incredible skill without the condescending attitude that can sometimes accompany that amount of skill and how he balanced the enormous demands of his performing and teaching schedule with the curiosity and creativity that he brought to the various aspects of his career. This was such a great conversation. Uh, it's such an honor to play with Nick when I've had the opportunity to do so. Enjoy. Here's Nick Kitchen. So, Nick Kitchen, thank you for doing this with me. My pleasure. Yeah. Um, one thing that I noticed in, uh, in doing internet research about you is that all, every bio that I could find of yours starts with, Nicholas Kitchen is a native of Durham, <laughs> North Carolina. <laughs> And I, I love that. Yeah. And I wonder if you could 
talk about Durham and why it's so important to you. That's always the first, <laughs> the first thing you introduce yourself with. Yeah. Um, well, especially where I grew up in North Carolina, Durham and the Triangle area is this, uh, very interesting mixture of, of really being in the South, um, which has a lot of positive things and a lot of negative things. Um, that can be true of anywhere, but definitely, um, you know, vivid history in the South of, of both things. Yeah. And, um, and of course, in recent times, it's become this magnet for all kinds of people that are thinking about all kinds of things, tremendous kind of intellectual background to what they're doing. That could be a biotech company, that could be uh, the building of a, a whole bunch of tracker pipe organs. Um, uh, now, I mention that because that's what I experienced when I was 11 years old, was the building of both a three-manual uh, philanthrop organ in the church that my dad has been organist and choir master in for basically 50 years. And uh, also the gigantic organ at Duke Chapel. And, uh, you know, Durham also has this Gothic cathedral, basically, that is at Duke University. And I kind of had the impression that every town had one of those. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. with a giant Flentrop tracker organ in it. Um, uh, and um, my mother, in response to a lot of the damage that had been done by um, the, the conflicts of the civil rights era. I mean, it's very important, you know, and amazing what happened there, but it had all kinds of consequences for the schools and, and just the way people were moving around. And, and when I was a very tiny kid, she and a couple of other teachers said, well, there's basically not something which allows kids to study uh, string instruments. And so they started a school and then Duke University said, uh, well, would you like to become the Duke University String School? And so about when I was a, really a tiny child, if not right around the time I was born, really, that um, that became a reality. And my mother led that school for 48 years. Yeah. Um, so, so it's interesting for me that uh, both my parents had this role of bringing music into the community, one through a church and one through a school that she founded. Uh, and that meant that, that um, so many people were really touched by that. And then when you kind of see it in this uh, interesting, um, kind of amazing quilt of, of all that has happened in North Carolina, uh, I guess I feel like that's part of my uh, makeup, my my foundation. Um, and uh, interestingly, even since I was a little kid, I one of some of my very first concerts were in Boston, and some of our closest friends were in Boston. And my dad taught. My dad is I, I mentioned was an organist and choir master in, in, in a church, but that, in a sense, was his second job. His first job was a math professor at Duke, and uh, he also taught at Harvard in the, the summer school, and so we would take trips to Cambridge where we would live in a house in Boston. So I still feel very connected to two yeah. places that have been part of my life since as long as I can remember. Yeah. 
Well, um, going back to Durham and, and the school that your mom helped to found, you know, there's a, I'm thinking particularly in Boston, there are a bunch of organizations that are doing music that is specifically like racially focused. That's the, you know, that their, their mission is to diversify um, the classical music community. And it sounds like she was maybe trying to like uh, bring people together. That that was the very beginning of school integration, I think is the timing that you're talking about, right? It is. And, um, I, I see that that when you have a systemic problem, uh, such as the difficulties with um, what has happened with race in the United States over long periods of time, um, it seems like every approach needs to have its place. And there are many, many approaches that need to combine, and each one can be excessive in its mm-hmm. way. I find it kind of interesting that I think my mom was quite aware of it, but also and in the most wonderful way, was very blind to it. So Mm. in other words, it didn't matter what color you were for coming into the school. And that meant that there were many people that were from different backgrounds and different races. Now, this is an irony because we happen to be talking about this subject, but the place that I decided to play classical music was Haiti. And... That is some of my very earliest memories are uh, from music in Haiti. Really? And, yeah, and that is uh, and 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 that's worth explaining a little bit. It is. Um, <laughs> I agree. Uh, because Haiti, of course, is a, a very interesting situation in so many ways. Um, in, in a historical sense, uh, you know, I think some people are aware that it is the first place. Uh, and the most, you could say, the most significant place that people that were enslaved actually rebelled against that successfully. And you can also say that the French have never stopped punishing them for that. And uh, that is terrible and has all sorts of consequences. Um, But uh, one thing which is very... um, palpable about being in Haiti is that people just don't stop for a moment. Um, They just get going with some beautiful and exciting thing. And uh, what that meant was that a person named Hector Lomani, um, who was a trumpet player and conductor, uh, he was in the environment of the old Haitian government with Papa Doc and Baby Doc, where um, there were a lot of environments you couldn't get anything done. But one of the things that they had respect for was the church, whether it was the Catholic church or the Episcopal church, they respected that as something that should not be disturbed. And what that meant was that Hector Lomini and a person who was Sister Anne-Marie, was her name at that time. She later became Mother Anne-Marie in Boston. Mm -hmm. And um, they had the idea, there was a very intense school, uh, which had lots of people who were both rich and poor. It was in Port-au-Prince, it's called École Saint-Trinité. And a beautiful cathedral connected to it with a big organ and fantastic murals. Uh, and uh, 
they had the idea, well, we should really intensify the music part of this school. We should really make it do something special. Mm. And um, Sister Anne-Marie, Mother Anne-Marie, or both of them, but, but she in particular is a completely unstoppable force. And she then proceeded to just go around the United States visiting Episcopal churches saying, how can you help us? And um, our church said, well, Joe and Dorothy, that's my parents' names, oh, they'll, they'll love being in the Caribbean. Let's pay their airfare to go down and help with the summer camp. Now, now also just, just absorb the idea that the most intensive part of this was going to be a summer camp in Laogon. And summer in Haiti is a very intense thing. Um, so that happened. And at that moment, I believe I was five years old. I then came down in the summer with my parents when I was six years old. And uh, that year, um, I'm elaborating about this a lot, but it, 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 I do kind of treasure uh, so many aspects of this uh, part of experience. Um, there's a lot of fame across the world for, for Haitian art, and it has an interesting kind of style that, especially in the past, had a certain primitive element, but it was, it was very, had this kind of vigor and energy that, that came from all of the paintings and sculptures and everything that people were doing. So there was a, uh, the, the boys' dorm, which I wasn't in when I was six, but I was in when I was seven, uh, is a series of 12 concrete rooms, which each house about 12 or more people on banana mats, which is, uh, you know, not exactly a bed. And of course, absolutely no air conditioning or anything, or screens or anything like that. But... Uh, the tradition was that uh, every room, both girls and and uh, boys, uh, had to decorate their room every day. So you would get up uh, for the flag raising, which I think was at 5.30 or 6. And then right after that, if you, whatever, getting ready, which meant, you know, water that comprised showers, not that it was hot or anything, but in the context, that wasn't so bad. Yeah. And um, uh, then the room, each room had the obligation to decorate. Uh, and so you would take the banana mats and roll them up and wrap them in sheets and put different and make sculptures and, and all sorts of amazing things. And then the person who supervised the campers, a person named Madame Rose, who was simultaneously the sweetest and most terrifying person I've ever known. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, she would go uh, down the rooms and rate each room every day. And uh, then you would accumulate all the scores at the end of the summer. And whichever room won uh, got uh, an entire day where you could have as many Coca-Colas as you want or as many Popsicles as you want. <laughs> totally free. <laughs> uh, oh, man. so that's that that and i'm mentioning all that because it because it, it is interesting on one level and when i was six i of course all i really had to do is decorate my room so i actually was 
the the sole winner of uh, of that year's contest. <laughs> I I would make uh, models of towns and and railroads and just whatever I could think of where I was staying with my parents. Yeah. <laughs> um, but all this is is now now many of those um, people that were my classmates, if you will, at that time, have gone on to be professional musicians. Uh, uh, Rudy Perrault is the director of orchestras and um, uh, faculty composer at uh, University of um, Minnesota, I guess, Duluth. Mm. And uh, the Casimirs have all had teaching positions in Philadelphia and all kinds of uh, wonderful schools there. And that was because the camp was really, really serious. And a few years after that, actually, with some connection to Mark Churchill and Mary Lou Speaker Churchill, that orchestra came to Tanglewood with their hand-sewn uniforms, which the Casimirs that I just mentioned, their mother was instrumental in sewing those, yeah. every single one of those. And um, when I was seven, I was too young to play in the orchestra. So I remember there was a, there was a kiosk, they called it, it was a shell and the orchestra played underneath the shell but it was open to the air and uh, then in front of that was a big field where the audience would sit but during most days that was the soccer field for the middle of the day and uh, then there was the uh, girls dorm which was one concrete set and then the boys dorm that was another concrete set and then a kind of uh, commissary where people would eat uh, and then a church, which all of it was was because the Episcopal Church provided that space um, in Leogon. Incidentally, Leogon was the epicenter of the giant earthquake. So I suspect every building that I'm mentioning right now does not exist. But at this point, I remember sitting on the stairs of uh, the dorm by where the orchestra was playing when I was seven, and I still remember they were playing, they were playing a lot of different things during the summer, but they were playing um, the Jupiter Symphony. They were playing Egmont Overture. Mm-hmm. They were playing Schubert Mass in G. They were playing the Vivaldi Gloria. Um, and I remember particularly when they were playing uh, the Mozart, I remember looking up above the field, you know, it was kind of evening time. And, you know, there were, thousands and thousands of mosquitoes kind of just just making a, a, a doing what they do and uh, and uh, and I remember looking at that air and then just kind of seeing the notes of the of the music as if they were just hanging in the air um, and and just feeling the harmony that was between those notes uh, and that was the moment I decided to play classical music, was right there. And I went and I talked to my mom and I said, I want to play in the orchestra. And she said, you're seven, you barely play the violin, what, well, you don't, you can't play in the orchestra. And I said, no, I want to play in the orchestra. And she said, well, okay, you got to audition. So she said, you have to learn everything and, and we, you have to play for all the faculty. And they, and so I did, and then I played in the orchestra. And when I came back, I started, I asked to study with, and, and I say I asked, you know, you think sometimes when you're somebody seven that it really was just somebody else's idea. But actually, my mother thought I was 
quite crazy. Uh, <laughs> and, and I asked to study with Georgia Chumpy, who was the head of the Chump, founder of the Chumpy Quartet, mm-hmm. a senior faculty at uh, Duke University. And uh, here I am seven years old and I say, I would, I'd like to study with Mr. Chumpy. And my mom thought that's just never going to happen. But if you want to meet with him, we'll just go meet with him. And so, you know, I got into the studio and I still remember this. And, you know, I'm at a point when I'm like, I sit on the chair and my legs are still, you know, uh, going underneath the chair. (laughs) And, um, And I played for him. And that was the moment I started studying with him. And uh, and I studied with him until I went to Curtis uh, quite a few years later. Amazing. So I mean, one of the things that I'm that's that's hitting me is I mean, Re- Haiti has a reputation of being one of the poorest nations it, it on earth. Yeah. And you were going back and forth between your home in Durham, North Carolina, where you know part of the research triangle, one of yep. the like intellectual capitals of the world. Yep. And then going to Haiti, I wonder like. Do you remember having conversations or like ever asking why it was so different? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, um, you know, we we take bathrooms kind of for granted yeah. in the United States. We, we, <laughs> yeah, we, we have definitely. a few to complain about, like two or three times in our life. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, of course, you go into a country that's dealing with, uh, and this is not just true of Haiti, it's true of many places. And, yeah. and those kind of the, the implications when infrastructure is not something you can take for granted, it just has consequences in everything. And, yes. and the bathroom happens to be a sort of a, a very... Um, noticeable part of that yeah but of course it's everything it's the drinking water it's the right you know what happens on the street whether the streets are safe whether the and i don't mean i'm not talking about crime on the street i'm talking about whether the street falls apart which is a different thing yes whether a grid... <laughs> not what i okay yeah yeah because i mean uh like sewage just yeah that's right, right, like, and and you know, water will destroy a road faster than anything right, on just Earth. Of and, and 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 I don't mean that people are not aware of that in in Haiti or many other places, but right, but, but they don't have state governments that provide all this, infrastructure. you know, infrastructure and funding for things that we we really truly take for granted. In so, our, like, in our, what did? Society. What was that like for you, though? Like, what were what was going through? <laughs> do you do you remember? Oh, I do, I do. I remember, you know, a really a really hard lesson, and I don't even know if it's a lesson. It's actually just a painful reality that you would walk through the streets of Port-au-Prince, um, ironically, because the government was so terrifying. Uh, you could have left something in the middle of the street. And in a certain circumstance, it wouldn't have, nobody would have touched it because this consequences would have been so severe. Um, at the same time, if you put it in another location, it would be gone within the moment that you blinked your eye. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, all, both, both things were true. Um, so did you lose, the, the, did things disappear? Uh, well, I had very nice bathing suits that I had brought and whenever they would be hung up to dry, they would disappear. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
they, they were just gone. They were just gone. And uh, I don't remember how we dealed, dealt with it. I guess maybe I brought a bunch or I, I'm sure my mom had a strategy. Yeah. Um, but what I was getting at was I do remember when I was about seven years old, uh, walking down the street and having, um, you know, five, six, seven young kids who were pretty visibly uh, emaciated, uh, you know, begging for for money or or really any, but pretty pretty much money, and um, you know, I do remember a few faculty say, "Oh, well, we should give them something," and people said, "No, you really don't understand. You can't do that. You will be swarmed. You will. You you can't do that." Mm-hmm. And um, uh. I wasn't really in a position to do it anyway, but I realized then that when when the proportion of uh, the challenges people are dealing with go past a certain level, it really is no longer in your personal set of decisions what you do about it. It's much larger than you. Yes. And of course, with that experience, those the, the that was an incredibly vivid sense that what individuals do is so fantastic and so admirable and so energetic and so strong and so creative. That said, the, the important thing was that, that music and the pursuit of something that was really larger than any of us just took away any... It made all of those circumstances of economics and life not just small, but irrelevant. And that is really amazing to feel that people's human creativity is really what distinguishes them and their sense of honor and their sense of uh, generosity. And, And I think not only realizing that about the people that I was with, but then also absorbing from a day-to-day perspective that many of the challenges that exist in Haiti and the physical challenges are certainly at that moment and today, most of the world is dealing with those challenges. And in the United States, we deal with them too, but we deal with them from a position of almost incomprehensible wealth. Going back to your timeline, um, that you ended up going to Curtis when you were 16. Up That's until right. that point, were you in public school or? No, no, I was in um, um, but private school, I guess. Again, my, my mother's school was in some ways a uh, attempt to do something valuable in uh, amidst the destruction of what uh, dis, you know, disruptions that had happened. Um, the school that I eventually went to for high school was also a school that had in some way been a response to what was happening um, regarding civil rights in, um, in North Carolina. Uh, it was, it's called the Carolina Friends School, and it's a Quaker school. And um, interestingly, that school, uh, the high school that I studied in, uh, was literally a log cabin, and it was a log cabin because it was built by the school students. <laughs> now, I don't mean they did everything. I think they had to hire a few plumbers and things, but all the 
all the walls and all the basic structure was uh, built by something that we called in our school, school service. So you had a school service class where you would build and repair and just work on the material of the school. Amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, you, there are many ways people can analyze an education and, you know, you might say, oh, they didn't have enough of this or they didn't have enough of that. And we, and I was kind of aware of that at the time, but, uh, I still feel, and, uh, I am so grateful that what that school really taught and what they brought across so strongly was that you, they want to teach you to think and to think for yourself and to be honest and really ask questions that go beyond what somebody is just telling you is supposed to be the way it is. Yes. Now, you were just talking about how you helped to build the school that you went yeah. to. And, it, and it's reminding me that one of the things that I remember about you from doing the Guest Artist yeah. Award was that we played on uh, off of computer screens, which is yeah. what right. Mayo does, and uh, that you had built the foot pedals that plugged into the USB port. That, that was, And I remember just being amazed by that. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it's striking me like that... I'm connecting that now to this very like general uh, general curiosity based education that you seem to have had, which is like, you know, that that music was obviously a huge part of your life, but you were also put into situations where you were expected to build a school. <laughs> well, yeah, and actually, you know, I I I, I uh, the the building of the upper school. Uh, what I what I actually lifted the logs on was a an attempt to build a solar shower. And it was uh, it was a total failure. They they were trying to do it with heated pipes, and it totally didn't work. But uh, but we built it, and yeah. uh, we tried, yeah. and uh, and 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 learned from the failure. That, and even that sort of fits in of just like a like yeah, let's try it. Let's see what happens. That's right. That well, seems I'm, to me like a something that you've carried with you. Oh, absolutely. And you know, one of the other things, and you know, I know a number of schools did this, but they didn't. They didn't worry about giving us a very complex, the computer was just emerging at those years. And they didn't worry about giving us a particularly um, high budget exposure to computer. But what they did have was one Apple II computer and they taught us to do programming language. So really? we programmed it so that it would paint pictures according to the program that we wrote on it. Oh. And and I will say that you see that was um, that was really wonderful, and I understood totally how the algorithms of a program work and the loops that are necessary to make it make it work. And of course, these were so rudimentary, but but all the same, it it really is the fundamental structure of how a computer does what it does, and still does, yeah, and still does. And so you would have had the the pedals that you used. You did you also have to program those as yes. well? Yes, yeah. yes, I okay. Did. So that was that was how that worked. Yes, you and I that. and I I uh, sought some advice um, uh, from a person I knew who did uh, uh, computer games, a, a guy named Dean uh, Camera. And uh, he was very helpful, though it was really funny that, that my, even though obviously his knowledge was, you know, vastly superior to mine, uh, there were actually crucial parts of the program that I actually corrected uh, as well. So we <laughs> kind of worked on it together. What, what he had forgotten uh, in, in our discussions was the 
um, need to have a, a, a period where it would not respond to the pedal. So there are 400 milliseconds after the switch has fired where it waits for the next. And that's, that's a timing that we, uh, I experimented with. I tried 600 and 400 and 300. Yeah. And, and some pedals today, I've actually noticed that they have a little bit too short a uh, time period on that. So you will pretty easily get a double pedal turn. Yes. And I found 400 was just about right. Right. And before that was what the, the when we first did it, I was so thrilled that that it was working and our efforts, you know, had been uh, successful and what I had written and what he had helped me with. Uh, except I pressed the pedal once and it went zooming to the very end of the document uh, uh, before I could even see a single page. And I would press the other and it would go back to the beginning. <laughs> Give it a stomp and just that, that's right. Oh. That's right. And um, and. Uh, one of the one of the things that I wonder about is how you balance your immense curiosity with the immense demands of being a musician, uh, and certainly of you know of your caliber, of the caliber of the Borromeo Quartet that you're. I think I read doing a hundred concerts a year, all different programs, all different like. Um, that must be a struggle. Of course, uh, the, the person who can uh, say it in the most biting way is my son when he says, well, you really better practice some more. Uh, <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and of course, you know, that is, uh, uh, I, I would never argue with that. And, um, you know, there are some people, I know my my old teacher, Mr. Goldberg, he suggested that, he said, I suggest that you become completely addicted to practicing. And um, I haven't achieved that yet. Uh, yeah. But but I think it's a really worthwhile goal. And maybe someday I'll get there. Well, um, it seems like you're doing at least okay without it, without the addiction. Well, I, I you know, I really do take the practicing. And, and now, you know, of course, once you're playing professionally and teaching and doing all kinds of things that I have the good fortune to be doing. Of course, you realize that those times when you were a student, when you thought, oh, I really don't feel like practicing right now, you just feel like, wow, what a fool I was, you know. Um, uh, you realize what, a, what an incredible gift it is to have that time in conservatory and in those, in those early times when you don't have that wide range of commitments. I mean, it, you have plenty of classes and things to do. People are busy at all stages, but uh, still you, 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 you come to treasure that time when you really get to practice. You, you know, it sounds like you ended up with a pretty healthy um, appreciation for your own curiosity and the fact that, you know, sometimes you were going to get distracted by foot yeah, pedals. Right. You know, like, That's and that right. Was, that was an important thing. And for people who, like, certainly for myself, and I think for other people who are younger and my age and who are going through conservatory now, they're feeling a, a sense of guilt about the fact that the music isn't the one thing that they need. And I, I and, and because, because that's, for that time in conservatory, you have the opportunity for it to be yes. the one thing that you need. And you know, that was never really possible for me. Like, you know, absolutely. Always, absolutely. I, 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 you know, and I, I think 
you know, if you look just at, of, of course, he was incomparably brilliant person, but, you know, look at what Mendelssohn was doing during his early life. He was painting and he was writing plays and he was debating things and reading enormous amounts of stuff. And uh, I mean, of course, that's a, that's a, you know, it's good to compare ourselves with the greatest people, not that not that anyone can, it's, it's extremely difficult to imagine anyone being as brilliant as Mendelssohn was, but that doesn't mean that there aren't many, many ways that people can um, actually, well, let me rephrase that. I, I think what we're talking about now is the fact that a richness of the things we're stimulated by is actually a really essential part of uh, developing a rich and complex vision of the way the music can be interesting and what kind of aspects we actually will have the imagination to bring out in its substance. So in other words, I think when we limit ourselves to this track that we've designed for ourselves, we, in certain respects, are actually shutting down the ability to have a map in our mind that is more robust, more varied, uh, yeah. more interconnected. Right. So I think, um, you know, uh, the question is just to, to encourage it to be happy about it, that, that sense of uh, richness and complexity and, and uh, fertile distractions, if you will, uh, and, and yet also to be aware that uh, once you've brought that into your life, you actually have to be pretty serious about balancing it when it counts. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you was about nature versus nurture in terms of musical skills. And, you know, it sounds like you, because of your parents' careers, were in a family that was, you were surrounded by music and that was very much um, a, a second language. Um, and I would imagine that you would sort of attribute that and the, that comfort and that familiarity with music in general to the fact that you ended up going to Curtis at the age of 16, you know, which is a, 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 a feat, you know, that's, that's a, that's an incredible thing to be able to do. Um, how much of, how much of that do you think was just the the product of living in the home that you lived in and how much do you think that was something that you know uh like a child is born with yeah I, no it's a really important question you're asking and and uh, uh the good part of it uh is i think people shouldn't spend much energy on trying to answer that question <laughs> uh and and i and i'm saying that because i know that especially when people are young and in school, there's, there's an, a, a really profound sense of insecurity that uh, is something about me, you know, are the things that I don't feel like I can do, is that something that's kind of in my constitution that I'm just not able to do that, or did I not get the right training to be able to do that? All of which is probably true. You know, you, you end up where you are because of where you came from and what you brought to it. And, and those are unavoidable. They are who you are. But 
I wish, uh, you know, I know that I know I had those moments. I know everyone has those moments where they where they doubt, uh, boy, why why is this thing not what I want it to be? Why why is it not where I feel it should be? There's some instinct that we have that that's bothering us about that. And if if you can manage not to be unhappy about that, it's actually a marvelous thing. And I know that you know in my role as a, a teacher. I'm going to do, I may not get the opportunity to address that moment because those are often things that are really inside people's yeah. uh, thinking. But when I have the opportunity to have some interaction with them, I kind of want people to feel like, well, you really are, you know, where you are is where you are. And yeah. it, it, you, it's so complex how you got there that you're never going to be able to analyze it. Right. But if that energy that you have today and right now is going to spinning those wheels in your brain, kind of analyzing, why did this curse arrive at my door? Um, you are wasting that energy. You are really, truly wasting. It's only going to make you feel bad. Mm -hmm. And you're going to divert yourself from the things that uh, will actually allow you to take, because we all have strengths and weaknesses. And we, what's wonderful is we instinctively kind of sense what they are. Yeah. And I think the more we can have confidence to say, no, I'm just going to put, I'm just going to put every bit of energy into that thing that I want to do well and just do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the it's that 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 private moment that you're talking about of these these wheels spinning. Um, that that happened to you. Oh yes, of the, course, absolutely. What was it, would you mind sharing what was the context? Because and I'll and I'll say I'm surprised to hear that, knowing you as I know you in yep. the limited way that I know that. But yeah, you know, yeah. just like looking at the looking at your bio, you know, I'm surprised to. Well, know that you would have had a moment of doubt. You know, I mean, this is an interesting thing about my own history. And I realized that, that very early on, I had the chance to be exposed to just people that were so artistic on such a high level and with such an incredible culture that was feeding where they were coming from. My first teacher, Giorgio, Giorgio Ciampi, you know, he's somebody who studied with UNESCO and he studied with Thibault and he studied, he was around, you know, these phenomenal musicians of another generation and was not just around them, but he was appreciating what that meant about what was really a beautiful tone and what was really a beautiful expression and how do I cause that to happen and he's asking me to do that he's demanding that uh in those lessons when i'm seven years old um now i the, the this is the part where one kind of analyzes it at that particular moment there's another kind of teacher that would have had me doing a bunch of etudes and a bunch of scales and for whatever my abilities were, I realized that I would tend to sort of get to an advanced stage in a way that made the teacher feel like I knew things I didn't know. Hmm. It, it, I would just kind of be able to play it. Um, 
and they would assume that that meant I did all the etudes and sort of uh, straightforward uh, building work that would have gotten me there logically, but that wasn't actually the case. Right. Now, what that meant was that eventually that that had consequences and things that I, when I arrived at Curtis, and you have such such incredible players, uh, and I realized, wow, these people have been exposed to things I wasn't exposed to. And uh, that, you know, and, and that was true. It was just true. There was no doubt about it. Um, now, yes, there were ways that if I was under pressure, I could leap at a speed that I would realize, wow, okay, I, I, that went well. <laughs> he said with doubt. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> but, but the question of getting there in a sort of way that could be communicated and was a sort of an accepted way to get there, often that wasn't where I was coming from. So it sounds like you had maybe a simple, simple way of, saying is that there are ways that you were sort of learning by ear that other people were learning by rote and you were recognizing that there were advantages to having learned by rote that you didn't have is that something like that that's yeah. one element of it for sure yeah and and of course you know that's just one element there were there were many many uh but but that 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 is a big one because i realized that certain scenarios of what the fingers do on the violin i could get them to do that, but it certainly wasn't a repeating experience that was just conditioned into me that I just sort of accessed by some, as a pattern. It was something that I invented every time. Yeah. And, uh, and I realized that that was really, um, and it, well, I should say I realized it distressed me that I realized, wow, I'm coming from a totally different place. And, and that, and, and sometimes, you know, as I said, sometimes I know that I was able to get to the other side, as it were, uh, in, in a way that all turned out. Uh, but, um, you know, other times I just didn't know what I was doing. Right. You know? And all you could see was the inadequacy of your way. As That's opposed right. to what other people yeah. were doing. I mean, I do remember the first moment of walking, walking to my very first Curtis orchestra rehearsal and the orchestra was sight reading Tannhäuser. And that was just not part of my experience. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, I love it. I love how it sounds, but that's an awful lot of notes on the page. I wonder if you share this as well. One, one thing that I kind of think about musicians of, of the like millennial generation is, you know, like looking at sort of the labor market. They're, they're looking at their teacher's generation and seeing that like many of the skills that their teachers have are things that they have gotten themselves mm -hmm. that they have been given through that relationship. Um, but their career trajectory doesn't look the same. And that kind of, I, I, my, my, for myself at least, that has been kind of a feeling of the rug being pulled out from under mm -hmm. me. And so some mm -hmm. of these questions about like, what's going on for me? It like, am I qualified to do that like, yeah that's where some of these questions have come in my own life and I wonder if you see that in your students as well is that something do you think that's actually what's going on or is that just kind of in my own head well well some of it I think is an is uh we could call it a kind of an optical problem 
where uh, I think most people have had the experience that they're they're going to go to the top of a mountain and you're driving and you think, oh, we're not far at all. And then three hours later, gosh, looks about the same as it did three years through three hours ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you said that, I even remembered some stories about Piatigorsky or Yuzai and many of these people that many of their early experiences, they seem very colorful because of the sort of scrappy nature of of what they would put together and make work. And it, it sort of comes out as telling a story, but that story is telescoping often many years of sort of getting by by the skin of your teeth. Yeah. I don't mean that's that's what they did. I mean, and I mentioned Piatigorsky, and of course he was he made some tremendous achievements when he was young, being principal of of the orchestra, et cetera. But there were other aspects where he was really pushing into areas where nothing was quite working or, and, and I know that people that I know well enough, the, the optical problem is that they take that kind of chaotic soup of events and you only view it once they came out on the other side. And you'll probably only be talking with them about it if they manage to turn it into a success. Right. Now, now can, let me add oh, to yeah. that, though, because yeah. there's no question that demographics change. Um, you know, there's a point where people in a certain generation, they had need for numbers of musicians that is changing. Yeah. Um, they had a sort of pre people had a notion that you had to have this and you had to have this in a community and you had to have this teacher of this and the teacher of that and the performer of this and certain slots that sort of became uh, places that a young person could fill as they grew up. Um, and uh, I think everything in life is right now at a time of pretty dramatic change. So yeah. lots of stuff, uh, you know, you can say that certain amount of ice that seemed to be there forever is not there forever. And similarly, things that people just thought would always be a certain way, they're not. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, 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 so there's, there's sort of two currents here where I think the, the, optical illusion or the perception illusion that where somebody has arrived, uh, the, 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 the illusion that minimizes the amount of struggle that got them there in the way it's perceived. Yeah. Uh, that's one aspect. But then I think there's another aspect where there really are, it's just a different playing field. I don't think it's something to lament as if we've lost it and it'll never come back and we're doomed. Right. We might be, but I don't think that's really the important part of it. Uh, I mean, you can have lots of things that if you were to, you know, if you really, really love all that stuff surrounding carriages and horses and all that, you know, you can have a museum that has that in it, but nobody's going to use it. Yeah except for a special ceremony. And so you might be the person that supplies that ceremony, yeah. but it's, it's a, that world has changed. It doesn't yeah. exist. And so 
each each generation is going to end up with uh, a world that changed. And I think ours is changing really fast. Yeah. And um, definitely there are ways that people can get direct messages and genuine messages out in ways that were never possible before. Right. So, so that's where the opportunities exist. Admittedly, it's sort of scattered and decentralized in a way that's hard to keep track of. And yes. I think it can be pretty daunting. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think, again, we are where we are and we've just got to put our energy in making valuable things happen. And that is what's going to drive our sense of satisfaction and success. Yeah. yeah. Classical music has snobbery. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with it? Do you just ignore it? You know, I, I ad advise uh, people I'm working with and myself. Um, I think the fundamental core of the way we relate to music is this feeling of singing. Mm. I mean, it's, uh, of course, there's singing that you actually do with your voice. That's one voice, but there can be singing that involves more than one voice. It's a little more complicated than that. But basically, it comes down to that act of you, of you shaping that line and that entity of music through singing it. Yeah. And I do find when people are headed to the stage and, you know, you can get nervous about all kinds of stuff. Um, I found a very good advice for them and for myself is that keep bringing your concentration to the act of singing and tune into your hands and your fingers and everything that is at your disposal and your instrument. Join that with your singing. Mm -hmm. And that track of concentration I find to be a really healthy track of concentration. It makes me more concentrated on the essence of the music. And if you really concentrate on that, everything else pretty much disappears. Yeah. And um, yes, there's many, many layers of snobbery and uh, in everything, in everything. And, uh, and it can cause some awfully painful things to happen and things that, that uh, you know, all sorts of injustices that happen between people are due to notions that sort of take over and cause the reality to become something that usually after the fact you realize, gosh, something terrible happened there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, that just can just happen on many levels. And in a certain sense, if someone has a preconceived notion and, and, and that preconceived notion dominates their ability to just perceive what, what actually happened, um, there's, there's really not much you can do about that. Now, all this is about perception, I'm saying. So hopefully people can have enough of a conversation that they kind of, without knowing it, lead each other out of snobbery. Um, into singing. It's well, yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And uh, you know, you can you can talk about that sense of singing, and and people will will talk about the same principle, and you know, being 
uh, mindful and present and all those things that have to, to do it. It sounds a lot like meditation, what you were talking about. It, it does. And of course, what's so interesting with music is that it's so active and it's so vibrant. So we're not trying to calm things down to uh, we're a little bit the opposite, right. but we're organizing them into something which, uh, which has this uh, beautiful spirit. And, uh, and once again, I think that's just some of the miracle of, of what can happen with music. And yes, people will, you will then start collecting opinions and all sorts of things can happen uh, for any number of reasons. And um, I I think someone has to be, you know, you have to be aware that, that people form opinions and they have histories behind those opinions. And that can either be kind of harmless or it can, in the worst case, become rather harmful. And um, uh, I am pretty reassured that nobody's going to take the trouble to get themselves to the concert unless they really want to have some exciting musical experience. So I'm trusting that if we are all wanting that to happen, uh, something good can result from that. Yeah. I have sort of two questions that I like to end with. And uh, the the first one is, uh, as honestly as possible, what is your least favorite part of your life as a musician? <laughs> and then the second question is, what is your favorite? But I, I do I do like to have it be in that order of worst first. Uh, my least favorite part. Well... Trying to decide how loud you can practice in a hotel room is pretty unpleasant. <laughs> well, there are practice mutes. There are, and yeah. I use them, but that's... Uh, uh, I mean, as a, as a prompt, you are tremendously busy. Yeah, and we... And, and as I was saying earlier, like, you are also tremendously curious. And is that is that one of the... Things that bugs you that you don't always have time to be curious? Uh, uh, well, I guess, uh, I don't know if it's a fault, but I guess I always make time to be curious so or, or struggle to have time to be curious. Um, I think that sounds like I'm more in control of it than I am. I think most, most of us are just, we can't resist our curiosity. Yeah. So that's, uh, yeah. and, but I guess I'm saying I consider that a good thing. And, um, yeah, I think, I think as relates to music, uh, I think when music, uh, connects, there is something, uh, really so beautiful about it that, that it, it just has a, it couldn't be more profound, the, the joy that that has occurred when music has kind of happened between people. And so that's definitely my favorite thing. And, 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 I, and I, I'm very aware that none of what we take for granted could, could exist at all if people hadn't been seeking that for hundreds of years. So 
Bach worked so hard. Vivaldi worked so hard. Mendelssohn worked so hard. Bartok worked so hard. On and on and on. Beethoven, you know, all of these great, great musicians. And, and, and those are the ones that are at the, at, are the mountain peaks, but it's everyone working at those times. Uh, uh, and I guess my, my favorite thing is that that, that is really, um, I just feel lucky that I can add to that. That's my favorite thing. And yeah, my, my least favorite is, is when you feel like you almost are not allowed to make music. In a hotel room. In a hotel room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's all I can think of for the moment. It's <laughs> a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Good. yeah. Well. Great. I think we've come to the end. Thank you so much for doing this. My you. pleasure. Should I have asked you anything else? No, I think I'm, I'm, I'm good. All right, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah. Hey, huge thank you to Nicholas Kitchen for joining me and chatting. Uh, yeah, I think you could tell that was a real pleasure for me. As I'm reflecting, there were two aspects of this conversation with Nick that I was kind of unprepared for. One was to hear the whole story of his life uh, while he was in Haiti. However, in hindsight, that makes it super clear to me why he developed these parts of his personality that I admired most. And, you know, the, the, com that combination, that paradox that I was noticing of the, you know, incredible skill that he has and the absolute lack of pretension that comes with it. Um, and it seems like for that in his life, he had an early, he had a chance early on to understand and appreciate the privilege that he had just as being an American. And that really grounded him. The other thing that I was sort of surprised to hear, but also in hindsight makes a lot of sense was just the depth of the wonder that he feels in confronting like the power of human connection through music. His earnest and open-hearted attitude, the spirit of wonder that wells up in him when he talks about music. I couldn't remember him talking that way before, but it it's so natural. I found that cynicism and sarcasm are often the go-to attitudes in the way that many musicians talk to each other. Uh, and that's, I think, probably true of American culture more broadly. But I've also found that it keeps conversations pretty surface level. And I really appreciate that conversations like this one go into that less traveled realm of being unabashedly earnest. So another thank you to... Nick. And one more thing. When I asked Nick about the labor market around music and around classical music, and he said, and just paraphrasing, this is a time of great uncertainty. That was before COVID. <laughs> Things in the classical music industry have been moving very quickly 
for like the past two decades. There's been some tectonic shifts before the past three months started totally changing our lives. All of this change is really the reason why I want to have these conversations, right? Just acknowledging that the career tracks that we all thought we were going to have, it's all going to look different now. And it often feels that there are less tried and true ways of building a career. But as we're creating new paths into the future, we need to stay grounded in some of these deeper truths about knowing what makes our work matter. Now, of course, uh, I hope that you all are doing well. I am doing okay. I am blessed to live in an absolutely gorgeous place. I'm actually uh, just looking out the window now and it's evening and there's just golden sunlight over a field. I can't believe I live here. Um, but yes, of course, I, I know that this is not an easy time for many, many people. And I hope that you're doing well and I'm sending you all my best and I hope that you all are taking care. So, that's the end of the show. Resonance was produced, recorded, and edited by me and is made possible by Palaver's Patreon donors with help from Brian Gilling, Brent Edmondson, Kiyoshi Hayashi, Alex Gooden, Heath Marlowe, and all the members of the Palaver team. Anna French gave me belly rubs when I got stressed out, and I wrote the music. That's it for this episode. Remember, take great care of your feet. Buy a pumice stone.